Welcome to Savvy Saps Podcast on Call-In. This is episode 105, DNC Fraud Lawsuit Recap. Now that you've heard from the lawyers of the DNC Fraud Lawsuit, what are your thoughts? They had some interesting things to say there. Let's go ahead and bring in Scotty. You are on the mic. Just have to unmute. Hey, Savvy. Uh, I, so I just got off work, and um, I was actually going to call in and, and say uh, congratulations to your Celtics. Uh, you do know the Lakers are also in the conference finals, and if they both win, you pretty much have another Lakers-Celtics finals. Uh, but... <sighs> I heard. <laughs> I don't know if I want that rematch. <laughs> uh well, you know, the media wants to see LeBron, uh, LeBron part of this rivalry. You know what's going to happen. But uh, so you actually talked with the lawyers in the interview? Yes, I interviewed them today. Okay, I might have to check that out. But, uh, have a good night and uh, happy Mother's Day to every, all the mothers out there. Thank you. Thanks so much. All right, let's bring in uh, Roger. Uh, Roger, you are on Roger, the mic. You are on the mic. Oh, let me take off the Bluetooth. Can you hear me now? I can hear. I can hear. That was um a very informative interview, but all I kept thinking throughout it was, "Eat the cake, anime. Eat the cake." <laughs> it's just like, oh shit. Oh, <laughs> all because of their interaction with one another. Yeah, I'm like, okay, what's about to happen here? Is this shit about to go off the rails or what? <laughs> no, but, I mean, I, I thought, you know, I, I thought they said a lot of things that, you know, I'm I'm hoping people can take this information with them and it'll be a learning experience for everybody. No, it was good, definitely. Um, I got a, you know, I got a lot of um, information out of it, you know, and um I could use that as a clip to to send to people and be like, these are these are the lawyers that that um, argued the case. Um, I didn't know about the guy uh, dying, um, you know, mysteriously found dead the process server. Sean. Yes, Sean. Did you know him personally? No, I knew I knew about him about his situation because for those who don't know like um nico actually interviewed them this was this was a couple years ago when this lawsuit took place right so this was after 2016 right so um nico actually had interviewed jared beck years ago and i saw jared bring up the incident about sean and i remember that blew my mind i was like wait a minute someone died so that's why I asked him, like, can you please talk a little bit about that or as much as you can? Because that was one of the things that um, was brought up in the interview with Nico and and with Jared Beck. And for people who are not aware of what this is all about, there was a, a lawsuit. Uh, Jared and his wife, Elizabeth, they filed against the DNC. So it's called the DNC fraud lawsuit. This was after Bernie 2016. And what they claimed was that the DNC rigged the primary for Hillary Clinton, which was true. Unfortunately, the findings were that apparently 
the DNC does not really owe it to voters to allow them to have a fair election, that they're allowed to pick candidates from a back room. Like this was all discussed in the DNC lawsuit. So anywho, along the way, there were other people that were involved that were part of it. And the processor, the gentleman, Sean, he was the one that actually delivered you know, served them was like you guys served basically to the DN to the the DNC. Well, that guy died, like just out of nowhere. His girlfriend apparently came home and found him on the floor. He was dead. They said there were multiple chemicals found in his body. Like anywho, at the time when Nico interviewed him, the police were not willing to turn over any information about the autopsy. And that also made it strange, if that makes sense. But go ahead, Roger. I was just letting people know if they weren't familiar. Yeah, excuse me, I'm at Stop and Shop, so if you hear some, a little bit of background noise, that's not me singing, that's the speaker. Um, but uh, yeah, that was, yeah, that, oh, what's up with all these Democrats keep killing everybody? I mean, let's not forget, you know, you talk about Seth Rich. What about, you remember Vince Foster, right? Who was found dead on the parking bench because he had some type of, I don't know, some type of incriminating evidence against uh, the Clintons back in the 90s. Um, I forgot about him. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, stop on the Democrat. They kill you. Um, there was something that I wanted to um, just talk about real quick. I saw that interview yesterday um, that Nick had with Nico. Uh, Nick and Nico. Nick and Nick. Um, <laughs> that, that was not, I, that's what I like to see. I like to see stuff like that. I'm not really, because he was talking before about, hey, how come people only tune in when they're talking about other YouTube hosts or whatever? And when they're talking about substantial stuff, no one tunes in. I'm the exact opposite. Um, I was watching the interview. And it got really deep when they started talking about their personal lives in terms of their dads, in terms of their dads and grandparents growing up in the South and talking about how, you know, they're talking about whoopings and things of that nature from your dad, grandparents, or whatever the case was, right? And just hearing when Nico was talking about how, uh, what Nick, I forgot which one of them was talking about how they're dad or granddad had a business and they got burned down by the clan and all that stuff um i don't get that from my from my um mom because um there's a lot of trauma that happens where they don't even talk about it you know right. what I mean? so I, I learned this stuff through other people you feel what i'm saying like a friend of mine told me he learned stuff from his uncles you know what I mean? Because um, his parents wouldn't tell him or whatever the case is. But right. I just found that very informative. Um, you know, I, I talked to my mother about, hey, you know, like, I know Mar Marcel Dixon was talking about black people, freedmen should move back to the South to establish a base. Moms was just like, I am not moving below the Nixon and Dixon sign. I am not going there ever again. <laughs> so... It, you know, like, you know, like that older generation, they don't really, if, if you're black, they don't really talk 
you're lucky if you have a parent or grandparent that actually tells you the trauma and stuff they went through dealing with the clan in the South. I mean, I know that was going a little bit off because I know the subject is about. Yeah, the, like my gra- my grandmother family. talked about it. Like she told me about those things, but like my grandfather didn't. I could tell he didn't really want to talk about it. But my gra- my grandmother was like no holes barred, by the way. Like she had no filter. So whatever came into whatever came into her mind, she had no problem saying it. <laughs> you're lucky. Yeah, yes, because I didn't I didn't know my um granddads because let me see, I came along later. My parents already had families before their spouses, before their previous spouses. So my siblings, like the closest sibling I have, we're thirteen years apart in age. And I got one brother and five sisters. So they're baby boomers. You see what I'm saying? So they got to know, yeah, I'm, I'm X, so they got to know my um, grandfather. So gotcha. my, my, my maternal grandfather died when I was one years old. Didn't know my paternal because from what my dad told me, he was a deadbeat anyway. So didn't know any of them. So I didn't have, I only knew my grandmothers. But they didn't even live in the same state. So I didn't have that type of um, conversing as if they lived in a neighborhood, as if I could just go over and see them or whatever the case is. So I was just saying it was a good interview that Nick and Nick had. That's all. Check it out. I haven't seen it. Um, but I have to check it out. I know Nico's... Um, was on there. I, I know Nick interviewed Nico also not too long ago, but um, I'll have to have to listen to that discussion. Yeah, that was all I wanted to say. I didn't want to take up too much of your time. Um, tell your mother I said Happy Mother's Day. I remember. I will do that. Cool, cool. All right. Okay. All right. Let's go ahead and bring in neoliberal. Tears. Hello, neoliberal. You're on the mic. Hey guys, happy Sunday. Good to see you. Happy Sunday. How are you? Ah, uh, I'm good. Um, amazing show today. I mean, I'm sorry we have to talk about like the DNC and deaths. You know, it's not 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 great. You know, not very uplifting. But here we are. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> You know, when you were, you reminded me actually the, about the 1968 primary. I mean, for people who don't know, there was um, a really unpopular Democrat, Lyndon Johnson, running for re-election. His approval ratings were in the toilet. And Robert Kennedy came in to like try to primary him. And then he won four primaries. And the night he won the California primary, um, he was unalived. Um, and now fast forward to his son trying to, you know, maybe, <laughs> maybe sheep heard us, maybe not, who knows. Um, but th- I, I, I appreciated honestly the skepticism. Um, cause I feel like RFK's messaging is right. Like he's so, he's above and beyond Marianne, um, in so many ways. But I feel like if the ending is pre-written, we should all know that, you know, like, so Sabi, what did he say about the super delegates? I missed that interview. Yes. So, okay. I'm going to cover it uh, Tuesday night, but Russell Brand uh, interviewed RFK Jr. recently. 
apparently like a couple days ago. And at one point in the interview, I have to go out and I have to pick my timestamps because it's been a minute. But at one point in the interview, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. said that he knows that the Democratic Party is going to give all the superdelegates, probably give the super, all, well, not all, but the superdelegates to Joe Biden. He knows that that's going to happen. So, see, this is the thing. And this is what I said before is like, you're making these statements that you know that it's rigged. You're, you're basically telling everybody you know it's rigged. See, this is the thing. Bernie Sanders never said that. Bernie Sanders never said, when he ran in 2020, Bernie never said, I know the DNC is going to give the delegates to none. And he already had went through that experience. And he didn't say it. But he's letting you know that he knows that it's rigged. So if you know that it's rigged, why are you still running through the Democratic Party? And if you know that it's rigged, why are you asking people for money running through the Democratic Party? Yeah. I mean, to quote, to quote a great intellectual, um, this is the problem. This is the problem. I mean, I, I almost appreciate the honesty, at least, you know, like, you know, the fact that he's like, okay, so he, so he's smart enough to know there's a mechanism that's going to prevent anyone but the anointed person, um, to make it through. That's nice. So what are we doing? (laughs) What are we doing here? Right. That's what I'm saying. That's why I'm like, so, I mean, I'm still like on the list to possibly interview him. Like I said, like they're scheduling him for like two months out. Like it's, it's crazy. But if I interview him, I'm going to ask him that question. Then what are you doing? Yeah, I feel like we deserve to know the answers. Like we just deserve to know. Like if you're going to, and if you're going to endorse Joe Biden, no matter what, like that's another one. Like people, people have been asking that question for two years because they're, we're at a different place right now as a left. We, we have better standards. Um, you know, and it's not better to just settle for anyone. Well, this also, this, you know, basically woke me up to a question that I had for Kim and I asked him that, during that interview, when she asked him if he was going to endorse Joe Biden if he lost, and she told him that it's not that I don't trust you, I don't trust the Democratic Party. And I told him, I said, he looked a little naive, like when you told him like how corrupt they are and what they're going to try to do. But now this goes to show that like, no, he, he wasn't naive. It's just that Maybe he was just surprised that someone asked that question during an interview, but going like in the Russell Brand interview, he says that he knows the Democratic Party is probably going to give the superdelegates to Joe Biden. And so to that point, then what are you doing? Right. Like, okay, so we are acknowledging that he's acknowledging that he's going to be overwhelmingly voted against, even if he wins the majority of delegates. Uh because the math with superdelegates, like, it crushes anyone. Like, he could win 99% of the votes and still the superdelegates would come in and kabuk. Um, so that's, that's, that's kind of ridiculous. I mean, I mean, and I also kind of, I, I, but I have to say what I appreciate about him is that I like that Marianne has some competition, you know? Cause for a while I feel like she was coasting on the idea of, well, it's me or Joe Biden. What are you going to do? Like, you know, when she told you and Nick, um, famously in a way that haunts me forever. Uh, don't vote for me. 
Don't vote. The first politician, the second actually, that I've heard telling people not to vote for them. The first one was Nina. Well, I had a feeling that other people might jump in. And to be honest with you, I have a feeling that more people still may jump in. I have a feeling that there may be a quote, I guess, quote, unquote, approved corporate Democrat that may get the green light to jump in. And I'm looking at someone like the possibility of a Joe Manchin trying to run. And if that happens, this and, is like a done deal. That's that, a done deal. And that happened in 1968 too. There was a, a Kennedy came and then as soon as he joined the race and started winning primaries, he won Indiana. Um, and uh, like I mentioned, California, uh, four states. They meant, they put in an establishment candidate. Um, I kind of forgot who it was. Let me see who it was. Um, yeah. The, okay, someone someone in the chat will remind us. But yeah, they that's a that's a play. And then, you know. So I don't know. I feel like I think what makes what raises the stakes about it for a lot of people is that his dad was like like not just his uncle, but his dad was murdered when he ran for president. Um so the fact that he would step into that, I think, kind of shows like your guests were saying, either he's an asset and very cozy, and I'm open to that, or he's showing a willingness to like really take that on. Um, and I, I guess I'm, it's hard to be sure, but we, I'll, I'll wait for your interview. Oh my God. That's going to be amazing. Yeah. I mean, I just think the writings like, it, this is to me, I can't wait to cover that on Tuesday night. Cause I think when I cover that on Tuesday night, I'm also going to talk about what happened with, with his dad, what happened after you know, how he was what he won in California and then such and such. Like, we need to go back and revisit all that because that's why I, I made sure to ask uh, Jared and Elizabeth that rule that Bruce uh, Spiva said that they don't actually have to, you know, give you the person that you actually voted for, that they can pick the person and they do not ensure a fair election process. That's why I did ask him, how far back does that rule go? And he said, oh, this goes back to the 60s. So what that tells me is that that rule also applied when RFK ran for, for president. That rule also applied to him. And then he was murdered after California. So this is this is very important for people to understand. This is very important. Like, this is not a new rule. And I bet you a lot of these people have been chosen along the way. Bill Clinton may have been chosen. Like, it's just, you know, they, they, they want people in that are going to keep the status quo. Like, that's a big part of it. I want to bring in uh, Noel. I want to get your take on this, too. But you guys got to read that book called What Happened to Bernie Sanders. Good evening, everybody. Hello, Savvy. Um, you know, as I listen to the back speak, I mean, I could just pull my hair out. Because nothing screams it is the system like their witness. It is the system. And if we want to um, process the American society as being a democratic society, there can be no greater hypocrisy than one of the two vehicles by which our voices are to be heard. 
It's just a total scam. If your vote doesn't count with the Democratic Party towards getting people elected, what sense does it make for anybody to be all engrossed and immersed in this system? They're telling you on the low, low, oh, it's not. This is the truth. We can really do this. This is the curtain being pulled from around the Wiz and the Wizard of Oz. But the people have been so blinded and programmed. But, you know, this, I tied this to, as I was, you know, listening and trying to reason out my perspective, it's all a unified thing because I was outraged at Norman Finkelstein during your interview, the way he was so defensive of Bernie Sanders and his stance and how he was saying Bernie brought Medicare for all to the national discourse. And he had been saying that for years. <laughs> and I'm saying, but that is a deception. Yeah, you rant and you may have brought it to the forefront, but you knew the system was rigged and you took all that money anyway. And then the way Norm tried to defend him, suggesting that his character is intact and he was, you know, come forth with the best of interests and integrity and this and that. But then when it got to um, Angela Davis, Oh, he could see the hypocrisy in her pivot from being an activist and then being all up into the academy. But my thing is, you know, you cannot give these people a pass. No, let me say something really quick about Angela Davis that I want to point out to people. Angela Davis, and, and I know we were taught about her as like she was an activist, that kind of thing. But Angela Davis was always an academic. She right. was always an academic. This is the some of the stuff I couldn't get in when I interviewed Norm because he talked for so long. And I was just like, man, is it, he's taking a long time to answer a question. But one of the things I wanted to say was that Angela Davis, if you go back to when she first started her activism, she was also an academic. She was not like just some she wasn't like a, a Fred Hampton. She wasn't like a um the other members of the Black Panther Party. She was already deeply entrenched with academic elite. And that's what people have to understand. So yes, she showed her hand more as she got older and she started taking a lot of money, charging people $35,000 exactly. to attend a freaking event, which is ridiculous. Uh, yeah, she showed her hand more as she got older, but she was always a part of that academic elite. Look at her her background, look at where she came from. So, So there's that. But the other thing is, I think the reason why he wasn't willing to see that hypocrisy with Bernie Sanders is because Bernie Sanders ran for office. And I think a lot of people were very much invested in this Bernie Sanders movement and really had a hope for it. Whereas with Angela Davis, she didn't run for office. And I think that's that's why it was a little bit more obvious. It's like how people can point out that BLM you know, was co-opted and they took all this money. It's easier to point that out because none of those people ran for office. You could see the writing on the wall. But I think where her, maybe he was like, well, I didn't see it back then. You know, and look at what she became because she she was known as an activist, but she didn't run for office. Whereas with Bernie, 
and I still get this from people till this day. They still feel like they have to defend uh, Bernie Sanders because he introduced Medicare for all and because he was a politician. But a lot of those people who defend him were a part of that Bernie movement. So they got to take the wool off their eyes. But that is to me, that is the epitome of an upside down ideology because the 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 polls will tell you that people want Medicare for all if as a politician he is responding to what he understood the needs of the people and the cries of the people to be then that's just par for the course that's what a political leader is supposed to do and so in terms of him having been consistent and using his run for the presidency to get that to the fore it is still twisted if you know that bringing it to the fore it's not going to have any appreciable effect you still know that the system is broke and i tie that into like i've said on um this podcast before you know we have no ally in the what we would call the free press it has been co-opted. So the interview you just did with the Becks, when that information first came to the fore in a public way, an independent and free press would have been shouting it from the rafters because this speaks to the core foundation of our democracy. But they've hidden it away. They know it's out there. They're not talking about it. And then, like you say, we're just for to my thinking we're everyday people but our eyes are being opened in a different way but you have insiders in that democratic and republican and political apparatus who know these things and so for marianne williamson and rfk jr to ostensibly be leading people back to slaughter not just at the democratic convention but in participation of this process they should be screaming from the rafters that it is rigged and until the democratic party is willing to fix it it is a waste of time but in addition to that, it's one thing to talk about the political figures who, you know, charge exorbitant amounts for speaking engagements and this and that. But Bernie Sanders and that campaign collected millions of dollars. I just can't see how you see a person who does that. It's not like he discovered yesterday that the whole thing was a sham. He knows the players from having worked with them the entirety of his and their careers. So he not only knows the players, but he knows the system. He knows the pledge he signed. And for you to come back and collect people's money, giving them a real false hope that something could be done and that you were running with integrity, to me, that is the epitome of a sheepdog and it is the epitome of a lack of integrity and when we allow the principles in this political system to get away with that and give them a pass and try and keep their integrity intact we're doing a disservice to the people because i like you and like i've heard nick speak when we hear these people at least with Bernie Sanders, come forward. And they're talking about, oh, this, this is going to be a revolution, this and that. Those are not just words. And you know how the public has been programmed. So how could you do that to people all the time knowing, and you can't legitimize that by saying the end 
justifies the means because he used that run for president to get this thing in the forefront because getting it in the forefront has done nothing. It has meant nothing. And I think a better service to the people is to help them to understand where the breaks in the system are so that you can fix those leaks before you go ahead and try and get something through. It's like saying, oh, I have plumbing and it's riddled with holes, but I'm going to tell you where there's a fount of good water so we could push it through the pipes, knowing full well all the water is going to come through all the holes in the pipes. I think those people do us a disservice and we'll never get a fundamental understanding if we have people who are in the public discourse like Norm Fickelstein and other people you know, running cover for certain people and only being willing to expose so much. These people need to be a wide awake so that everybody can be like, okay, RFK and Marianne, if you all want to run, are you aware that this system is broken and how do you plan to overcome it? And why are you inviting people into the system? It's not like you have a chance. Mm -hmm. Well, well said, Noel. I do just want to add really quick because I don't want people to think no one, no one covered it. Uh, Nico House, whoops, Nico House and Convo Couch, the MCSC network, they covered it heavily at that time because Nico was the one who came to the Bex with the information because he was a part of, actually, he led that Bernie's movement in North Carolina. That was the largest Bernie organization, uh, during that election campaign that Bernie had. So Nico had poured like, you know, thousands of hours of his own time that he didn't really have. Like he, he was a, a, a college student. He was oh, in school. I, he was at the University of North Carolina at that time. And he was doing that in school at the same time and stuff because he really believed in the movement. And so Nico, Convo Couch, MCSC, like they covered it. Tim Black actually covered it heavy, heavily too. And Nico went on Tim Black show and covered it. And Jimmy Dore, I know Jimmy covered it. Jared Beck, I think the first time I saw him was on Jimmy Dore show when they came forward about the DNC fraud lawsuit. I don't think everyone covered it. But the point being uh, to what Noel is saying is like people should still be talking about it right now. When you got people like Marianne and RFK Jr. running and they know damn well these people have no chance of winning. They know that the DNC is going to rig it like they've done before. And to sit up there on screen and say to people, you know, donate to Marianne or I don't find any harm. And that's why I asked Norm Finkelstein. I said, do you think there is value in them doing it? And he said, well, yeah, because that's the socialist position. And that's why I brought up the, the statement from the DNC to Norm, Norm Finkelstein. And I said, so there's no such thing. They have no duty or obligation to do a fair election and they can pick the candidate that, that they want. So what is it all for? And notice at the end of that interview, I think he, he kind of like was given up in a sense where he said, listen, I'm old and right. this isn't my world anymore. You right. guys are going to be the ones to make the change because that, that's why I had to hit him with like the actual documentation of what they said, because like, nah, you can't just continue to sit up here and say, well, Bernie introduced Medicare for all. Okay, great. But at the end of the day, where was Bernie Sanders when it really mattered? Where exactly. was he? Even Nancy Pelosi talked about universal health care in the 90s. I mean, where did that get us? It exactly. got us uh, Obamacare exchanges. I mean, I, I just want to 
point out about Norman, actually about, I've noticed this uh, with um, older Jewish people in particular with Bernie, they have total rose-colored glasses with with the guy. And I do not co-sign. I, I co-sign everything Noel said. I think the betrayal was real. I think, and I point out, I point this out very often because I think people don't grasp the magnitude. Like Bernie in 2016 won 23 states uh, with all of the hundreds of millions of dollars that he managed to raise against all odds. And in 2020, he won six. I mean, we, he a quarter of what he um, uh, of what he won before, and that's with the uh, uh, you know about a similar amount of money that we all threw in there. And it really bothered me, even when you brought it up to Marianne. Like, um, you know, why should people like you know you you guys brought it up to her like hundreds of millions of dollars? Where did it go down the drain? And she was real uncomfortable with that because she was trying to get people to donate to her. <laughs> like it was such, it was so freaky, like that she wouldn't have any empathy for that kind of a thing. You know, it was just kind of a scolding and, you know, we agree on 90%. Why won't you, you know, just. And here's like the thing. When, when Mr. Beck was saying, when Nico House, and first let me put a disclaimer out. I understand that what we do know has been brought to our attention in large part by the efforts of people like Nico House. And so nothing I am saying and when I express my, you know, reservation and consternation over a lack of a free press, I am not broadly talking about independent media or any of the people who have worked so hard to bring this information to our attention. I'm talking about CNN, MSNBC and all the people, Fox News, that the majority of this country relies on on a regular basis for information. The the one of the fundamental tenets of our democracy is not real. That should have been front page news, New York Times, everywhere else to put the pressure on the DNC and the Democratic Party to change that. And that's how you get changed. But again, we have no allies in this system. But also, I wanted to pivot to a portion that you know, in that Finkelstein interview, when he talked about the current times and saying, oh, people need a leader that they can trust and they can believe and this and that. And I'm saying, hold on. When we do get people, we don't know these people who emerge from Congress and the Senate and this and that. We can only go by the information as you make it available. That is the importance of a fourth estate. So when Bernie comes forward and he's consistent and he seems reliable, people, that attorney Beck said he was interested in trying to get the money back to the people. And he said there were homeless people who gave their last to this Bernie campaign and yada, yada, yada. So for you to come out and hold yourself out to be a legitimate candidate in an apparatus that you know is riddled with deficiencies and it doesn't work, I think that is the most fundamental breach of the public trust that you can imagine because you're taking money from unsuspecting people and the only reason a lot of people parted with their few resources is because they believed that what you were saying to be true. When he said there would be a revolution, it resonated because the gut of this American public knows that a, re a revolution is what is needed.
So a lot of those people, and the same with Obama, they can diagnose and they speak with integrity to the situation, but then they pivot and go behind the curtain with the wizard and start doing all this wizardry. How can any of any of this be trusted? I just think it's horrible. And then for Norm Finkelstein to, when he got to the issue of Israel and why a two-state solution or even discussing it might not be a prodigious thing at this moment, to to initiate the whole discourse with the frailties of the Palestinian authority, when they, no matter what frailties that the Palestinian authority is culpable for, clearly Israel is in the driver's seat. Clearly they are almost in the same place as the perpetrators of the Holocaust were. How can you go directly to the people who are being victimized and talk about stuff that's what what they've done wrong and why it's not a right moment. They're trying to survive an apartheid. So how can you even open that discourse on Palestine first when it's Israel who is in the driver's seat being propped up and in, energized and enabled by America? I just thought the whole thing got off the rails. And to your point, Sabby, I agree with him absolutely. He is of a different generation. And until you can... And this is another thing that occurred to me, and I just wanted to to underscore this in terms of allies, because when he talked about and that's, you know, I guess you can tell that whole interview had me kind of off the the thing. (laughs) But what bothered me is for him to say, oh, back in the 60s when we did this and I was there and, you know, as soon as they got back on the bus, people were lighting up joints and this and that and blah, blah, blah. And he felt like the energy going forward has more integrity. But it occurred to me, for the allies and the people who participated in the civil rights movement, you may have known academically that what is going on in this society is wrong, but it is not your lived experience. You know, it is one thing to be out there saying Black Lives Matter as a white person or a Jewish person, because you know in a real sense that it is unfair what's going on, but to be the black life that is under threat, the, to be the black mother or father who has to coach their child that if you're stopped by the police, keep your hands on them, that's a whole different level of real reality. And it's not just I go participate in the march because when the march is over, we come back to these lives that do not matter. The Mm -hmm. allies go back to privilege and everything else that is afforded to them. And again, I say we cannot be where we are at this juncture in this nation's history without a massive amount of Americans who just didn't give a damn about what has been happening to black people in particular, the descendants of slaves from the beginning. From the beginning, a lot of the stuff we're seeing now is nothing new to the black experience because we've never had anything different. But it's different for some white people now that they're waking up to the fact that they are on the plantation too. But I say to you, this has been happening right under your nose all the time to us and nobody cared because it was the black experience and the black nightmare that propped up the American dream. That's why they didn't care. And it bothers me because the further and further I get into these situations, the more and more I realize that the problems go back to the beginning. 
and they're tied to capitalism, the intersectionality with white supremacy and racism. And the only time now that it's becoming a big issue is that now the predatory nature of capitalism has it feeding on its white working poor in a way that it had not. But as long as they were spared and it was just us catching hell, it was par for the course. And so I say, welcome to the feast and get on the table and get on the plate because you are the entree. Damn, Noel, that was fire. Um, Yeah, I, I actually had had a conversation with Norm before this interview. It's not aired yet. Like you guys won't see this conversation until June. It's part of a conference. There's a, a long conference where there are a couple of us. Actually, there's a long list of people that are involved with it. Some of the things are pre-recorded. So I actually had a debate with Norm Finkelstein about the statement that he made on the gray zone where he said that, I don't think you guys remember this, where he said that uh, a white people are just a smidge above black people. And, you know, the person who sponsored that conference reached out to me and put me on, on the panel for the conference. And then they also reached out and asked me if I would be willing. They saw that segment that I did and asked if I would be willing to debate Norm Finkelstein about that issue. And I said, oh, absolutely. So that's important for people to know. This was not my first conversation with him. You just haven't seen that other one yet. But when I had that debate with him, I made it very clear to him that, like, look, I understand that you have researched this issue and you've written books about this issue. But there is no way that you can sit here and tell me what the black experience is like in this country when you are not black and I am. And he was like, Oh, I understand Sabrina. I'm sorry. You know, I didn't mean it that way. He's like, I, I explained everything you just said. I had to give like statistics and data about the homelessness population, about where the plight of black people are in this country. And I had all of the stats and I spat those out first. And he said, I understand. I talk about this in my book. And I said, Yes, but the reason why we are here today is because of the comments that you made in that interview to Aaron Mate. And I said, no shade on Aaron, but it's not right for you to sit up there and say those things to him about the black community, knowing damn well that he does not have that lived experience and he can't push back on it. And notice how he was not willing to say those things to me. And I told him, I said, I noticed you you have not said those things in conversations that you've had with black host. You said that to him because you knew he couldn't push back on it because he does not know. And he tried to tell me, well, I've researched. I said, it doesn't matter what you've researched. You do not have the black experience, period. And here's the thing. And I appreciate people attempting to shed light on these subjects, but just a perfunctory look at American history. You know, people talk about FDR and the New Deal and all of this stuff and how society this and that. And even in telling that, they leave out the fact that during that entire period, there was a whole separate narrative for the descendants of slaves in this nation but they don't even address it. They just say, oh, and everything got better and this and that and blah, blah, blah. And that's why Trump is able to say, you know, um, I'm going to take you back to a time that was better and this and that, you know, make America great again, knowing full well that America has never been great for a segment of its population. When we talk about the 
massacres and this and that, people will say, oh yeah, there was a massacre in Tulsa, this and that, but nobody, and, and when I say nobody, I mean white people, in their telling of the story, they don't hammer home the fact that there was never any justice. And so you're just left with this atrocity. And it's the same with the indigenous peoples. You took their land, you marched them off, you betrayed treaties and, treaties and this and that. And yep. that's part of the course. But I'm saying, if you don't look through American history through the lens of its most oppressed and disfranchised, you will never see it clearly. Because the story that we consider American history is just a one-sided narrative. And I'm saying for people who are not descended of slaves, you have to know that. When immigrants come to this country, come out, oh, I'm looking for opportunity. This and that. Well, hell, take a look at us. We've been here and we don't have the opportunities. And it's so bothersome to me that they could say, oh, we're a nation of immigrants. The hell we are. We're a nation of indigenous people who have been, you know, pushed to the margins of genocide. We're a nation of enslaved Africans and their descendants. And we are a nation of immigrants who were given benefits and, you know, advantages over the people who have been here and built the damn nation out. And so for me, when people... You know, I understand people fleeing oppression, especially the oppression that has been facilitated by America's imperialist and hegemonic foreign policy. I get that you broke it, you fix it. But I'm saying just a perfunctory look at the history and the society today, while you're coming here from East India and other places and Africa looking for education and benefits, you know there's a whole segment here that is looking for the same opportunities that you come looking for. So it's like, and I'm not xenophobic, but I'm saying, isn't there some primacy to having been born and having ancestors go all the way back generations? Doesn't it occur to somebody that something is fundamentally out of order? And I realize now it's the whole narrative. And the only reason we're having some of these like I say, discussions now is because that beast has begun to feed on its white peasants. And so now it's this all oh, great big issue. Let's form a class solidarity. Well, if you can't put the most oppressed at the top of the chain for class solidarity, how do you expect us to get there? And that's why I think it's such a big divide because we can't talk honestly about what has happened and what's really going on in this plantation nation. Nothing has changed, just that you've been invited to the feast. Yeah, this is exactly why, and then I'll, I'll go to Casey. This is exactly why at the end of the interview, he said, um, you know, when you reached out, you know, there was some hesitancy, you know, not because of, you know, this meeting, but what happened before. Because in, in the previous discussion, I told him, I said, your universal policies does not make everybody even. It doesn't make everyone equal. Black people will still be at the bottom. And I told him the only way to really level that playing field is not just by those universal policies, but also you have to implement reparations. And yes, you need to have cash payments, not this bullshit reparations, which is like where people are saying, oh, well, we're just going to, you know, just try to like, improve the schools a little bit and here and there. No, like you're looking at century of wealth that was stolen. 
that was stolen. You can't get that back just by fixing a school. And that's what people have to understand. You're not going to get that back just by giving everybody Medicare for all. Because even if, when you give everybody Medicare for all, you still are going to ha have the differential treatment that black people experience when they go to the hospitals, when they go to the doctor, that black women will experience when they are pregnant and they're going through childbirth. Those experiences will not change just because you have Medicare for all. And that's what people have to understand. So I had already had a prior discussion with him. That's why at the end he said there was some hesitancy because of what I said to him in the previous meeting, that he was wrong. What he said in that interview to Aaron, that shit was wrong and it was incorrect. And so I had to correct him on that and tell him, no, that information that you gave him was incorrect. And you knew you could get away with that because you knew that he didn't have the lived experience and he couldn't push back on it. He didn't say that to Bree. He didn't say that to me. He knew better. Go ahead, Casey. Oh, what's up, girls? Everyone? Uh, hey. Um, so, yeah. Um, I'm going to go completely off track, like always. On, uh, bring up, I was speaking to someone from Kenya. And this blew my mind. And I spoke to, asked a bunch of people, um, you know, when I go, wherever I go. Um, can you believe this? And so what I found out, what I'd learned, not found out, what I'd learned, because this is about freaking like Noel um, and you, Sebi, just dropping facts like, um, anyways, so uh, this woman from Kenya was saying, so how we've been for uh, ever donating, uh, you know, our clothes and through these bullshit, um, I would call them now shell companies, like what the hell is going on besides uh, crookery. Um, so anyways, so we donate, say, to the Salvation Army, our clothes, um, and hoping that it goes to someone where they do not have to pay because they can't. And they, people need freaking clothes because it's not naked and alive or whatever the fuck that's called. And so uh, this woman from Kenya um, was saying that they receive, uh, so Africa, uh, country in Africa, um, they receive these clothes, yet they have to pay for them. That... You're talking about the clothes that we donate to places like Goodwill and the Salvation oh, Army? Oh, yeah, Sebi. For, what, 40 fucking years now? Ethiopia? <sighs> like, it's 20 fucking 23. Um, this is what's blowing my goddamn mind. And where, not blowing my mind, like, well, when I talk to people and they're like well yeah that doesn't surprise me i'm like what the fuck are you talking about it doesn't surprise you you know what you're better off nowadays donating but to people you, you're better well, off donating yeah, to people course, directly but the tyranny of it all like noel like 
hard follow-up, but uh, this fish, like I keep saying, these fistulas of, uh, sorry about the S's, <laughs> no teeth, um, of this tyranny. Uh, so anyways, I like that blew my mind. I didn't know if uh, others were aware of that. It doesn't corruption. surprise me because I will say that um, I know like back in the day I used to donate to the Red Cross. And then I stopped doing that because I found out that like most of the proceeds don't even go where they say they're going. Um, so that They're was my first pay for it. Well, that was my first red alarm in reference to like these so-called charities or some of these places like Goodwill, et cetera, stuff like that. This is why like something that Rome does tour for the poor is so especially oh, important yeah. because oh, when yeah. we did tour for the poor here in, in Boston, the difference is you're giving those items directly to the people that yeah. need them. You're not going Direct through another, all the way. another company or anything like that and hoping that they do the right thing. When you hand yeah. the goods directly to the people yourself, then yeah. you don't have to you know, worry about these things. But some of these places like the Goodwills and the Salvation Army. Point. Yeah, you're right. That's, yeah. I mean, absolutely uh, direct action. Um, but what I like, holy shit balls, is that, <laughs> wow, they are reselling shit for over 40 years now in the name of uh, whatever they call, they would call it. I have no idea because um, it's insanity. Uh, but anyways, that's capitalism. Yeah, there you go. Um, but yeah, it blew my mind because uh, that kind of math and numbers is like how much? Like you talk about uh, these people are producing garments at uh, a nickel for how long? And now you're reselling garment. Um, my god like you said capitalism it just blew my mind and it you know uh made yeah. sense of why people in africa were wearing disney t-shirts i'm like what the hell yeah um, none of that none of that surprises me um I, I highly recommend like to those of you who do donate, uh, some people do this every year. Yeah. But um, I would encourage you to get involved in mutual aid and donate directly to the people face to face yeah. yourself. I Absolutely. would encourage you to do that. There was yeah. an issue too with um, this company here called Kratos to Crayons. There was an issue with that too at one point. Where people were saying so that the goods disgusting, yeah. Where people were saying that the goods didn't actually, some of the goods weren't actually reaching the kids. Same thing with um, the Salvation Army. Every year around the holidays, notice how they'll stand outside of Walmart or any other like grocery store, and they ring that bell and ask you to donate the money. You don't know that that money is going to the cause that they say it's going to. Well, we know it's not. Like, it's not a question of 
if it is we know it's going to as i you know we all know it was referred to as white collar bitches <laughs> um you know the top um and that's where it stays um what's what's your take on buckets of coin what's your take on what's your take on what you heard from the becks the becks today about the the fraud lawsuit um no idea uh i'm not familiar i think i uh fell out okay yeah i sorry sabby i need um time to think and shit like that that's why i just wanted to uh, bring up that whole kenya like it blew my mind that what we're donating for at least 40 years now is being reselled in africa um that blew my mind yeah, it happens. That's insane. Because not only is it being reset, like, so, oh my God, we're donating uh, what we buy here, what we wear, for 40 plus years now. And then it's being shipped to Africa, uh, washed at some point. I, You know, that's me being positive that, yeah, it's being washed. Um, it's being shipped to Africa and then resold. And we here are walking around like a bunch of, not even walking, this is my whole idea of like fucking ostriches. Mm. Looking pretty and then they fucking stick their little heads in the sand. Little, little brains. Do Oh my God. Sorry. Anyways, tangent. Um, so proud of you, Sabby. Please keep doing what you're doing. Um, definitely think this Kennedy shit is sheep herding us, like Noelle said. Slaughterhouse. Hello. Yeah. 2023. Um, thanks, Sabby. Thank thanks, you so RBN much. And everyone. All right, you guys. Adios. All right, I'm going to bring in Dave. Dave, you're on the mic. You just have to unmute. Hello, how are you? Hey, everybody here. Hi, Dave. What's your take on all of this? Uh, the DNC fraud. It's it. My God, I, I don't know. You know, it's it's like uh, now. You know. I'm glad you're. Co- I'm so happy that you're covering this kind of journal. You're doing this kind of journalism because it's. You know, you're getting the work. Like now, you know, now that that's in the video and on YouTube, people can see that the they can see the language of the government. You know, or more clearly that it's good to cover that. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I just think that again, it's like, I know some people were like, why is this being brought up after all these years? And I'm like, because we have people running through the Democratic Party to the left of Joe Biden and telling people that they plan on winning. And like, no, you don't. You, you really, according to the DNC, you are not going to win. No, no. I mean, I was going to, 
Yeah, I mean, I'm, you know, you know, I, you know where I am, you know where I'm situated from stuff we, you know, like I said before, but uh, I'm looking forward to seeing like what kind of, you know, where you're going to turn your, you know, where you're going to turn your, your journalist, your investigative debunking journalism the next, you know, in the next month uh, to see what, uh, what you, you know, what you, uh, what you turn up there. Yeah, I'm going to be following this very closely because you could all, could you guys obviously tell, and Noel, you can feel free to jump in too. Could you guys obviously tell, like, with Elizabeth Beck, that she was just done? That she was just like, I don't even, there's no need for people to even try to do this. Like, you could tell she just had this look on her face of just like, there's no need to even try to fight for this. Because you become disillusioned. And and what I don't think the people who move in the inner circles can really comprehend is the level of real betrayal we've experienced when we realize this whole thing is not just a sham, but the participants in it know it. You know it. Bernie Sanders wouldn't join that lawsuit. He wouldn't come out and say anything. And you running all over the country to my vote for Hillary Clinton, this and that and a third, knowing what the agenda is, knowing this woman from all those years of working in a Democratic Party. You know, how can you do that to people and not have some type of emotional response? And like the other thing is, and I've said it before, when people are resistant because their gut instinct is that something is not right, but somebody comes along with a different swan song and sounds like they have a different level of integrity and you say, okay, I'm going to give it a chance. He's singing a different song. He seems di different. Like Norm Finkelstein said, he's been saying this for years and this and that. So I'm going to take a chance. And you send your $27 and the next time you get a gift, you say, well, I'm going to send a little bit more because this is going to be the revolution that changes not only the system, but changes our lives, changes our lives. People are acting out of a type of desperation. And then you turn and you say, oh, you got, it's the lesser of two evils. You got to support Hillary, this, that, and a third and blah, blah, blah. And when, when the cover comes off and we find out that this thing is rigged in a very real way, you aren't out on the front street saying, this is an outrage. We really have to have a revolution. You tuck your tail and go back to the Senate and get your committee chairmanship. And we're still supposed to think you are just as full of integrity. And uh, no, people digress into a worse place than they were when they first got introduced to you because they feel betrayed. That's they, right. You know, they yep. went against their gut instinct and took a chance on you anyway. And you turned out to be just as dirty as the rest. It hurts. And that is what is destroying this system from the inside out. And you, I'm sorry, you cannot just go back in with the feeder class and pretend like and start ranting raving again and this and that. But you got a chairmanship. You know, but you're, 
it's like, who does that? And these people, they know it. And that's why I get so outraged because I'm like, nobody is leveling with the American public that this whole thing is a ridiculous sham. And when you figure it out and try and speak about it, they want to vilify you. They want to, you know, frame you with some type of lunatic or you're just. And I'm saying this whole thing is a sham. And it was the Democrats through the Clinton era who was so responsible for a lot of the detriments we're dealing with now. Yep. You know, they really brought big money into the Democratic Party in a way that it had not been. They pivoted away from labor. They did the welfare reform. They did the crime bill. Those were all Democrats. And I'm saying, what have I been thinking all these years? You're just on autopilot and you're just going there. It's, you know, I just feel it in such a primal way. I'm like, well, I would just be goddamned. And it breaks my heart that we're still playing this charade. It really is kabuki theater. And we get to pick between elites every cycle and be told it's an A and B selection and you just gonna have to pick the lesser of two evils. It's crazy. I hear you. Anything else to add, Dave? Uh, I would, you know, on the re you were talking about the real, you know, real estate investment. I could say a lot of things there because I because I worked so long doing tenant organizing and you know, there's a lot of observations you can make there, like things that happen in that in that uh, you know in that around real estate purchase. And the crazy commodification. I mean, I'll use the language of the nonprofits and the leftists for a second. Um, I don't like the nonprofit language, but you know, commodification of housing. And so housing is wholly commodified in the United States and it's commodified underneath casino capitalism of, you know, run by Goldman Sachs, basically. So we would see things like one day the, the, the head of the organization asked me, you know, I was, you know, a guy who's older than me at like my boss there basically asked me, to like find all the aliases for this real estate company, like this real estate company that is buying the buildings that the tenants we're working with live in. You know, the tenants we're trying, we're, we're trying to organize, you know, we're doing demonstrations, we're trying to organize civil disobedience, all kinds of stuff, fighting with the city council on it. Anyways, like he was just like, they seem to be operating under a lot of different aliases. This, this is really one company, but they seem to be operating under, I've been noticing that for a little while. I've been noticing a lot of the, Corporate real estate companies in Boston operate under like at least twenty names in their le in their legal they sign legal documents their legal fucking correspondence and their correspondence with people. So one the one that he asked me to investigate had a particularly large number of aliases. I, so I spent like an hour, like two hours counting up aliases on different pieces of paper we had in that in that you know radical nonprofit office and. And it was like 73 aliases for this company. They used 73 different names in that one period of a few months in legal correspondence. It was all the same. It was the same LLC. Like it was all the same LLC. Right. Limited liability. <laughs> Limited life, motherfuckers. And like all that time, they're evicting black, you know, black, you know, Black people from Roxbury, Dorchester, white folks in Roxbury, Dorchester, sometimes the ones that were 
that lived there and fucking like buying all the housing and like and like disciplining the city the city councilors on those issues. Motherfuckers! You gotta people gotta fight. People gotta fucking fight now. You gotta be ready. You got you you have to disregard and you have to disregard some constables, some local politicians and some you know local real estate agents. You gotta you gotta be you gotta be disregarding those people, like in in the street. So anyways, that's my comment. Well said, Dave. Well said. Yeah, the real estate issue is a big problem here. Um, it's it's a big problem. And then you have like some of these real estate investors are in the back pocket of politicians here too. So that doesn't that doesn't help. All right, thank you so much, Dave. I'm gonna go to uh, Bad Cookies. Yeah, take care, guys. Hello, Bad Cookies. How you doing tonight, Sabs? Doing great. That's good. Uh, I'll try to keep this short because I know you got to get going soon. Um, I only have three questions for you. Uh, what was your impression of your guests tonight, the two lawyers? I think, you know, because I watched other interviews of them prior. I like always, I usually do that. I'll watch interviews of someone prior before I bring them on. And I could tell the difference from when they first started pursuing this, this lawsuit a couple years ago to now. Whereas like now, I noticed they're definitely even more vocal about how they felt about the system. Back then during that time, they were like, well, yeah, this is what happened and da da da. But I noticed there wasn't as much, um, I don't want to say anger, but I guess they, they didn't seem as as frustrated as they are now. Like they were upset. But today I noticed, like, like I told you, the look on Elizabeth's face, like you could just tell she was just like, I'm done with this shit. Like it's just, and, and this is important for people to understand too, when it comes to Jared and Elizabeth, they weren't just some lawyers who said, okay, let's try to, you know, fight the DNC with this lawsuit. They were people that were very much Bernie supporters, donated money to Bernie Sanders, like really, really wanted to fight for people to have better lives in this country. And Nico brought the information to them and said, listen, this is what's happening. They're totally like rigging this shit. And so what people have to understand, I think it's important that Jared said, is like they had already started filing the lawsuit before that announcement in Philadelphia. That part is very key. So they had already seen the evidence in reference to the rigging of the primary before Bernie had that that infamous Philadelphia convention where he told people to like, you know, you got to support Hillary, that kind of thing. But you could just tell that they're just, they were just disgusted with, the, they're just, just disgusted with the system. Whereas when I saw the interviews from a couple years ago, at that point, you could tell there was some chance of some hope. They had some kind of hope. They really did want to get people to get their money back. Like all those people who donated money to like Bernie Sanders for the DNC to do what they did. That was one of their goals was to refund the people, which I think is something that should happen. Look, Bernie Sanders doesn't just owe me $27. Bernie Sanders owes me hundreds of dollars. 
And I think there are other people that are in that situation too. But yeah, that was one of their main goals was to give the money back to the people. And in reference to the homeless people comment, that is very true too. There were homeless people at Bernie's rally here in Boston too. And that's what people don't understand. Like when I say he got money from poor and working class people, I saw that with my own eyes. That's so disgraceful. Yeah, um, I could I could see the the frustration in their faces, like you described them. Uh, you, um, I could hear a, a a little bit of rancor in their voice towards this whole situation. And Elizabeth was giving me straight Yoko Ono vibes, the way she would like have real angry outbursts out of nowhere. I was like, man, I can feel this lady's <laughs> vibe. It's heavy. You know, that's the, that's the whole impression I got. Cause when I tuned into your show tonight, I kind of tuned in halfway through the interview and I, I didn't know who those people were. I'm like, who are, who are these people that had savvy has on? I, if you didn't tell me they were lawyers, I would have never guessed they were lawyers. I just thought they were very disgruntled people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, uh, yeah. Was, the other, if you watch the interviews from years ago, like, I think the first one I saw with Jared Beck, like he was wearing a suit and everything and he was at the office and all that stuff. But I think over the years, they've just become even more frustrated. Yeah. Oh, it's real nice that you had them on today to talk about the DNC lawsuit, because like you have said before, um, I've noticed also that a lot of people do not even know that this lawsuit ever even took place. The DNC did a wonderful job blanketing all the information about this because you bring this up to most people that are just your no normal voters they have no idea this even took place and you tell them this like hey the dn triple c said they are a private corporation and they get to decide who these people are that you're gonna vote for and the first thing they tell me is what are you some kind of republican don't you and that's the first thing they go to and it's it's uh it's a real bummer but I'm glad that you talk about this so more people can be aware of this because not so many people are aware of it. Um, <clears throat> well, I want to add something to that too. Yes, ma'am. Part of the reason why not so many people are aware is because when I say like some people did cover it, like when it happened, it wasn't enough. It wasn't enough. And I'm not talking about like mainstream media, but in independent media, it wasn't enough outlets that covered this story. No, I completely agree. Uh, again, they did a fantastic job blanketing it because once you know that the common person has never heard of something, you know that it was a social conditioning that they were programmed to not even. It was probably some random thing that had them distracted, like a Dylan Mulvaney Bud Light commercial or God knows what, whatever it is. They got distracted, never even heard of this. So uh, I, it's it's a good thing that you're bringing it up. It's, it really is. Uh, I wanted to talk about my favorite parts of the interview. Uh, one of them was right at the end when he, when you said, Hey, how can people find you? And they said, don't find us. That was awesome. <laughs> Loved every second of that. <laughs> and, and the other part, and this was my all time favorite part of that conversation was when he said, uh, the only way the system is going to get any better is if it breaks first. And the only way it breaks is if people stop participating in it. I, I've been saying this for so many years to people that keep voting in a duopoly. Like, you, you can't vote in a duopoly. If you vote in a duopoly, all you're going to do is perpetuate the same cycle. And we're just going to sit here and do the same thing over and over. 
And the first thing people tell you is, I don't want the other side to win. I have to vote. It's so impossible to talk logic to these people. And uh, it's, it's disheartening, but the way he worded it is perfect context of how I felt for many years. And uh, I'm sorry, that was a bit of a tangent, but I wanted to ask you, what were your favorite uh, moments of the uh, interview you had today? Well, that was one of them when he said about the, you know, the system has to break. That was one of my favorite moments. Um, I think that's, I'll probably clip that and put that on for my Twitter pr promo. But um, that was one of my favorite moments. And, and the other one too was just like the, the whole story about how they actually videotaped their processor handing off the papers to the DNC and the DNC came back and said that it never happened. Like even just that, it's like they had actual video evidence and the DNC just still just, just blatantly lie. It's just, you know, I think it's really like eye opening and I encourage everyone to read that book. What happened to Bernie Sanders? I think it's important for people to see. All right. Thanks a lot, Sabby. It's uh, always a pleasure to talk to you. Have a happy Mother's Day and uh, catch you next time. Awesome. Thanks so much. Okay, I am bringing in Eric. Hello, my friend. Hey, how you doing, Sabby? Good. It's been a minute. Thank you for taking my call. <clears throat> I want to say first, this is so awesome that you had these guests. I too, I joined late, so I couldn't hear everything. So I've been trying to listen to them while, while the calling is going, uh, going on right now. I was trying to go back and listening to these guys so that I can talk a little bit more about these guys. But I've never heard of them, Savvy. I've never heard of this. I mean, I didn't know about these guys. And uh, <clears throat> to back cookies before, um, whatever happened, did the the mainstream or, or even the our, our media didn't do a good job covering these guys just i literally did not know about them at all first time i've ever seen them so when i came on and they, they were talking on your show i too was like who are these people i didn't know who they were and then um uh, i think elizabeth was her name she was really great i really liked how she just didn't mince any words she was just being blatantly honest she was not filtering you know the way she felt about things and um the fact that i think I, her husband was basically saying or maybe it was both of them um pointing out to the fact that the american psyche the way that we are conditioned to believing in the agenda of the mainstream status quo the, does not allow us to believe the fact that these bad things are literally happening in front of us like we disbelieve what really is happening, you know, even like she, she mentioned, Elizabeth mentioned how um, how regular it is for people to get assassinated if they go against the status quo. And when we can't believe it, you know, we cannot believe it because the amount of propaganda that goes on that if you call anything out of the out of the norm, you're called a con conspiracy theorist immediately. So you're, you know, you're banished and put away. And that is so built into the psyche of, of the American people that it's like ingrained. You can't see it, but it's there among the, the general public. 
Uh, and that's part of the reason why it's so challenging to get past things. Like even for RFK Jr., uh, you know, you, <clears throat> I think, I don't know if we talked about this in the past, but essentially he's got all these blind spots and he's still in a way, in a, in, in a weird kind of way, sort of promoting the, the pos- possibility of, of the, the Democratic Party becoming something that it never was, you know, like they've never been great. They've been pushed to do things, but they never like out of their own, you know, because they wanted to. They just went ahead and did all these great things. No, they were pushed by the movements, by people, by the pressure that was used and leveraged against those in power to do something on behalf of people. The Democratic Party's never been about helping us, per se, at least not in my lifetime. And I've seen it only get worse and worse every decade. And so... Uh, he has a big blind spot. He somehow has this nostalgia. And, and another thing that he has, RFK Jr., like when, when he was on the show, uh, I, I think you were doing a, a review of him when he was on, I don't know if it was Hannity, but, you know, and Hannity doesn't let him talk, or, but he let this guy talk, I guess. But essentially, uh, I, or maybe it wasn't Hannity. I'm not sure. But when they ask him about Joe Biden. It was, yeah, it was Hannity. It was Hannity. I remember. Yep. The mental decline. To me, it's like, why are you holding on to that? Why? To me, it would be more sincere. And he would come across more, not only more sincere, but more people would then buy into him. If he would have just said, yeah, the man is a mental decline. We, yep. could, we could see that. I don't have to be a doctor to see that. I could just use my common sense. Right? And so, But he was unwilling to go there. And to me, that's a red flag that he's sort of hedging his bets to still be nice or being in the good side of the DNC or the Democrats, because otherwise he'd come out and say it. Right. Because even if you don't win, that doesn't mean you can't, you know, there's no opportunity for you to be offered another position in the Biden administration. That's right. And you know, Savvy, this is where Trump is gaining a lot of people's trust, even though he doesn't warrant it. Okay. And just kind of hear me out. He talks a lot of truths. He puts a lot of things that are actually, we know them to be true. And then he bullshits. He lies a lot simultaneously. But because he does that, that duplicity that he has when he's like lying, but he's also telling the truth, it makes you want to believe him. And, and that's part of his appeal, you know, where he's put all these populist ideas, especially during his first run. And obviously, he didn't do any of them. But but to the common person, because we're so conditional hearing the BS that when you hear somebody telling even a little bit of truth, you're more inclined to say, oh, yeah, maybe this guy's or this person's good. Maybe they're going to help us. Right. And Trump's been doing that in his in this last, um, I guess, presentation that he had at CNN. He killed it, even though he was BSing on a lot of things. To me, he came across like somebody that was competent, like he could you know, push back in a way that, and I'm not saying what he was saying was great, but I could see how he would, the contrast, the contrast between him and, and many of the others, and certainly against Biden, the guy came across like, okay, this guy knows he's talking about something. It seems like he's, he's, he's done his homework. And I guarantee you, Savvy, people are going to like that. You know, I'm not talking about us, your audience. I'm just talking about people in general because they're going to hear that message. And also the fact that collectively, 
the population in the U.S., we know that they're going after him and that they don't want him to compete. And, and we as, as, as a nation, we don't like that. We don't like for people to be unfairly treated in any way. It's something that's built into us. So the fact that they're coming after him, even though he's, you know, he's done all these things, we're still going to say, well, you know what? He deserves a shot. And that is also going to catapult him to more people liking him, I think. I don't know what your thoughts are on that, but that's you know part of what I see. I think this is an important point that you just brought up um, because the reason why some people will cheer for a Trump is because we've been let down by so many people prior, right? So to Eric's point, if someone comes along and they give just even a little bit of truth, people will jump on board. Like, for example, during that town hall, when he was asked about Russia, Ukraine, and um, she asked him if he wanted Ukraine to win this war, right? Now, it was really funny to me, and I'm, I'm listening to this, and I'm looking at what people are saying on Twitter, and I noticed there were a lot of liberals on Twitter saying, he didn't answer the question, he didn't answer the question, that's a stupid answer, he wants them to lose. And I was like, actually, that was the right response when he said, well, I want this war to end. Yep. That's actually the right response. He said, I don't want any more lives lost on either side. Now, again, Trump could just be bullshitting, but still, but no one else is no one else is saying that's the problem. Like no, like Joe Biden's not saying that. No. He you know he, he hit that out of the ballpark. And I think Jimmy did a little uh thing on that because I know I saw a clip of Jimmy talking about this, that this was like the best answer he could have given. Even if everything else he said beyond that, you know, was lies or what have you, he hit that out of the ballpark. And there's going to be a lot of people that are going to listen to that answer, you know, even like myself. I like that answer. I sincerely like what he said. Like, hey, this is not about winning. And, and this is where it really shows how much out of touch the people that work at CNN are. That they're actually looking at this as if though it's a game. You know, if you ever seen people die, that's not a game, man. And you really feel for another human when you see them pass away, even if you don't like them. So when you ask a question where we're going to win or lose, it's not it's not about that. It's about like stopping the war and not having more people die senselessly. You know, point blank. That's what that's that's how it should be. So he gave a really good answer because of that. But we set the bar incredibly low to say that, oh, I want people to stop dying. He could have just as soon as said, well, excuse me, but nobody wins in war. They're losers. They're all losers and we're losers, too, because at this stage we understand that nobody wins in war. But I think what is alarming to me um, and what you say, Eric, has validity People who will see Donald Trump as some type of beleaguered figure being chased by the oppressive state and this and that and being dealt unfairly, they may look to him and have some type of sentiment. But here's the thing, a right answer does not a whole candidate make. A broke clock can be right twice a day. 
So my, my problem is that people see the modicum of truth that this man speaks and forget all about the Iranian general who was killed during his term. The fact that he, he didn't start any wars, but he was cozying up to figures who are problematic. He was uh, all the time using the office of the presidency to further his own agenda, his own personal agendas. So my thing is, he is flawed no matter how many right answers he gives. And he, when, when you have two corrupt parties and he has no allegiance to either, it's easy to cite simple truths like the system is broke, this and that, you know, we shouldn't be at war, this and that. Of course, that's easy. But have you given policy prescriptions that will fix any of these things for the American people? Have you stopped pandering to the race baiting? He's still that he is still that same person. And I just think we we are so thirsty for somebody to say something credible that any, you know, demon can walk up and say one or two things. Ooh, it's high noon. Oh, yes, he's the right person, child, because he said it's high noon and it's 12 o'clock. That's well, just, let, you let know, just... that's so incredibly, that's such a low bar. But let, let me let me just share this with you, Doyle. Everything you said is accurate, and, and, and I think is you, you, hit, you hit it all on the right points there. But, you know, your initial statement is where we are. You know, the bar is so low, and we don't have leaders you know, right now that there's not a single leader out there per se that I can account for, except for Kashama Sawan, but, you know, but she's not running for president. Uh, we don't have anything like that. And so just looking at the picture that's actually currently out there. Yeah, you're right. You know, and, and we're, we're all thirsty to, to hear some truth. Uh, and, and, you know, going back to what Savvy and others were saying, you know, we can't, put our energy and our money into the system because it's just going to do more of the same, right? That's why these two attorneys are so deflated and so jaded. Yeah. So, so laid so down, right? down, right? Yeah. But, you guys should definitely yeah. walk, go back and watch the interview. I think it was five years ago or so um, that he did with, with Nico, the very first one, because he's done a couple and um, Nico was actually at his office. So this was an in-person interview. And you can see the difference. Like, because like when I met them today, like I could tell, like they're just pissed. Like actually today beyond pissed. Mm -hmm. Because yeah, this was years ago. But what people have to understand is that people tried to silence them. Like, I don't know if you guys are aware or if you heard them say this, but like they are removed from Twitter. And this happened uh, prior to Elon Musk. Uh, both of their accounts were removed from Twitter. Um, there's a couple of people on Twitter that have still been trying to like preach their message and share their, their video clips to remind people again, like, hey, guys, don't fall for this again. Yeah, we need to do more of that. We need to do more of, of putting their story out there at the forefront in some way, because I, I, I'm telling you, Savvy, I never heard of these guys. And I listen to, you know, uh, podcast streams like every day i never heard of yeah. these guys but i did want to say something you know i always try to you know because I, I 
I try to be positive, but I know that I can be very critical of just about everything in my life. But I always try to look at something, you know, like like some sort of light down the tunnel. And I know Roger, Roger has some concepts out there that could help us, you know, that he talked about in recent shows. Like, I think it was like the 100 call-in or things that he wants to put out there where, where he could, where, where the power can go back to the voters and we can actually do something and vote what we want and amend the constitution of every state in such a way that neither the Republicans or the Democrats could do something about it. To me, you know, finding out and, and learning more about that, I would be more interested in that if, if we could do something about that, because I think that would give us the opportunity. And, and I think his, his strategy was, was multifold. You know, it wasn't like just one thing. I, I, I think he was saying also, we can also vote people out who don't back us on this. You know, like we can garner more people to get behind this, but also get people to understand that we're going to need politicians to fall in line for this. To me, I see that as, 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 a, as an avenue for us to get more out of the system and leverage our numbers against what's happening. Um, so, oh, my bad. That was a. Oh, go ahead, Roger. Oh, okay. He, Roger, you still there? Oh, okay. Go ahead, um, Eric. I think Roger maybe. Okay. But, you know, well, what I'm saying, Savvy, is that, you know, the system has definitely failed and it's broken. And uh, unfortunately, the majority of the U.S. population doesn't know that it's, that it's how bad it is. I think they can feel it. I think if you speak to any American, especially if you get them on a on a one on one, and you can and, and you can talk to them about certain points and things that have happened over the last few years, most reasonable people are going to agree with us. Uh, th that's what I feel because I've talked to certain people that I didn't know who they were. You know, I remember going to Home Depot and talking to this one guy who was working at Home Depot. And we just started to talk, I think it was like a year and a half ago. And, uh, you know, at the end of the conversation, uh, again, I didn't know this guy. I didn't know his whole background. And, and he didn't know me or know my background. But at the end of the day, it was like we could agree on a lot of things. And, and one of them that we really agreed on was that we're more alike than we're not. You know, this, this was a white guy uh, talking to me. And I think he might have been a little bit older than I was. But that we can agree on a lot of the bad things that have been happening and, and that a lot of things that should be happening, we could agree on, you know, whether it was universal health care, living wages, uh, just having a safety net for the people. And so that's why I say there's an opportunity to do a strategy like Rogers trying to push for, because it will be independent of both parties. And, and, and we could probably garner a lot of people's uh, behind it. And, and, and simultaneously, by getting those names and building email lists of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people, we can leverage that to do more for us. Eric. Yes, sir. Can you hear me? Oh. Yes. So where you live? I live in the Bay Area. Okay, you live in California. Yes, sir. Is that California? Yeah. Yeah, it oh, is. Oh, did I lose yes. you again? Oh, okay. No, no, I'm here. I'm here. I right, listen. So, all right, you live in a citizen ballot initiative state. 
everybody who you know who lives in one like i said the the 50 states are links to a chain work on making your link strong you already um you already have the ability to place initiatives on the ballot to amend your state constitution as well as to pass california law i would suggest that anything that you wish to um I told you the difference, right? Between why it's better to do amendment through initiative than law through initiative. I think you said it was because one gives you the ability for, for the parties not to come after it and change it after you do it or, or to, to deny it. I guess I'm not sure that that's the right term. So when you pass it as a law, then the government can come in and repeal it and weaken it without having to ask you unlike they would if you ratified it as your own amendment okay okay one one thing you can do which nevada has done is um they did a a, a nevada constitutional amendment through their initiative process to say any law that the people pass through um an initiative um cannot be touched for seven years Mm. And if and the only way they can touch it is if they have two thirds majority in both chambers. Now, me, I would make it, say, 12 years and you can only touch it after 12 years with two thirds majority in both chambers. On top of that, it would not be um, after passage. It would be after it's fully implemented. Because you could pass a law, but that doesn't mean that it goes into effect automatically. I mean, remember, the ACA took uh, four years to be fully implemented. Got it. You see what I'm saying? So there's a lot of types of tricks you can do. Now, here's the thing. Um, The California Public Banking Alliance, they were running an initiative to to have uh, public banking in California. But because... um, politicians like to take credit for the work that you did they saw how serious people were about trying to get a public bank so they wanted to take credit mm. so Newsom, hurry up quick pass pass the bill that allows 10 regional public banks the formation of 10 regional public banks and, and municipal public banks okay so those are already in the works why okay? do yeah so what i'm trying to do is i spoke to ron placone today not like you know, like over the over his chat or whatever the case is. And I go on these monthly Zoom meetings with the Public Banking Institute. Okay. And uh, I connect with people there, just like how I hook uh, Frank up, you know, uh, um, who comes on here and talks about, you know, uh, Colorado stuff. Yeah. So I, I connected him with um, one of the guys who ran the Colorado Public Bank um, amendment as an initiative and had to like withdraw it because it violated the single subject rule or whatever the case is. So I, I what I saw I was doing is trying to like, Hey, hook them up and then try to push forward again. So I think, I think they're like doing it. Um, the last public banking thing that I was on this past Friday, um, there's a woman there from Washington state. Okay. They're ballot initiative state also, but they can't do amendments. They can only do laws or whatever. So I hooked her and Laura Fielding from 
Red Berets, whole Washington yes. up to maybe do some type. Because I was just like, because she was looking at, because Ruth, she was like, man, this thing's not passing. You got this one senator that's holding it up. She's all frustrated. So I convinced her to do a ballot initiative. So I said, listen, speak. You know, I, I brought those two together. And I said, listen, Laura knows the ins and outs of the initiative process. So so I, I got them two talking. Okay. Um, I know. So one of the people that I met from the public banking um, institute Zoom meetings. Yes. Um, yeah. Lives in California. So I'm getting, I'm trying to get. So I asked Ron, would he like to interview this person um, to talk about, you know, what's going on in California? So he said, yeah, sure. Okay. There was also somebody there from um, uh, there from from Orange County in Florida. Okay, so I found out that that's where JB lives in in Orlando. Okay, so I was like, listen, the the thing about a public bank, it's hard to do a state public. It's not that you can't do it statewide if you don't have if if you're one of those states that don't allow for state income taxes. They do still have state taxes, but you got to work out a whole bunch of tricks and stuff like that. But the guys looking at pushing, I convinced them to push a local ballot measure for Orange County Public Bank. Okay, so that's the same person. Um, that's the same county that JB lives in. So watch his show on Tuesday because Nelson is going to be on there. Okay. okay? So if, you know, so if so, you know, like you know, just send me information. I'll, I'll see what, what I can do to try to you know connect you with somebody. Thanks from the California Public Banking Alliance, but Thank I'm you. driving, so I can't put my stuff. I can't type in the chat. Okay, no but worries, man. You drive yeah. safe. I'm gonna. Um, I'm gonna take Peter, and then I'm gonna end up closing out pretty soon. But um. Thank you, Roger. Thank you, Savvy, for letting me talk. Thank you so much, guys. No doubt. Thank you both so much. Okay, Peter, let's get you in. Thank you, Savvy. Can you hear me? I can hear you. What's up? So you're you're based in Washington D.C. Is that right? No, I'm based outside of Boston. Oh, okay. My bad. My bad. Since I saw you in, in the in that the Rage Against War Machine, I thought you were in D.C. I did a emancipation statue debate um, episode last Sunday because uh, the emancipation statue in uh, Washington D.C. and one in Boston now it's a there's a bill reintroduced in D.C. to remove it. So I have said that, that emancipation statue, despite the fact that Lincoln is on it, is a clear political signal that whites are born free, blacks are freed by whites. Yes, I remember this this issue with the statue came up a couple of years ago. Yes, there was um I, yeah, a couple of activists. Yeah. yeah, activists were um asking for the statue to be removed. I remember. Yeah, a few years ago, and uh, and recently I. I got the news that it's being reintroduced. I said, what? It's not being removed uh, two years or three years ago? So, because of that statue, not only it's called the Emancipation Statue, it's also called the Freed Man Memorial. Freed, F-R-E-E-D, meaning you are being freed by another human being. Even though our Declaration of Independence is saying all men are created equal and have, in, you know, endowed with the rights at birth, not freed by any government, any president, any lawmaker, right? So that's why I will link to this uh, DNC lawsuit, even though I don't think it has a, 
that uh, he does not have a chance for for a good reason is this. So blacks are always the political captives of the white liberals. As that emancipation statue clearly said, you are freed. You are not born free. Remember that. It's important. It's a fundamental importance. Kennedy families has fooled the black. And I heard about the Jackie Kennedy's comments about MLK saying MLK is a, like a pure evil. LBJ fooled the blacks with the Civil Rights Act of 1964. As Malcolm X has said, blacks don't need a Civil Rights Act to be able to vote. Right. It's already written. Again, you take a white liberals to free the blacks so that they can vote. It's not that blacks are born to have the rights to vote, to participate in the political, you know, systems. Similarly, Biden will say, you don't vote for me, you ain't black. Because I am the one who freed you. The Democrat Party give you, the black people, the rights to vote. When in fact, you are, you are born free to have the rights to vote. The message is that you are not born free to have the rights to vote on your own. It's us, the white liberals, the Democratic Party, gave you that. The DNC lawsuit, I have just did a quick read. I did not know they did, uh, someone did that. I agree that Bernie Sanders probably was screwed by the DNC. He is a white liberal. He has the standing to sue DNC. And he chose not to do that. He is the only person who will have a standing saying the DNC manipulated the entire system in the primary. That's why I'm out. He did not do that. He's a white liberal. So give up your hope that some white liberals is going to be the white knight to save your ass. They are not going to do that. Repeatedly, they would never do that. Because you will continue to be the political captives of the white liberals. That's as simple as that. So this lawsuit actually proved that only Bernie Sanders has standing. Only he can come to the court saying, I got screwed. It's my money. It's my supporters' money. I want the NC to pay me back. But he chose not to. Shame on him. So that is something I want to share with you guys. Because I'm very shocked. The emancipation statue, uh, as I've said in my episode last Sunday, it's worse than Robert Lee's statue. Yes, it's pretty bad. For, I just want to explain to people who are not, who don't live here and aren't aware. There's a statue here in Boston of Abraham Lincoln, um, and there's a slave kind of kneeling down, and it's called the Emancipation Statue. It's pretty gross, actually, and I'm actually surprised that it it only took like a couple years ago for people to advocate for that statue to be removed, and I'm thinking to myself like. How did black people feel comfortable living at least in that neighborhood, seeing that statue every day? It's it's pretty bad. Like, I, I got to be honest with you. It's pretty bad. Yeah, I played the song Born Free on my episode last Sunday because you have to remember every one of us living in the USA, you are born free. Your rights are God-given, unalienable by any government on any fucking another person. It's your rights, not anyone else's. So... I just think this lawsuit is quite relatable because uh, Bernie is the only person who has standing to sue. He chose not to, therefore this lawsuit failed. Not because the lawyer did not do a good job, not because 
the Bernie supporters is not passionate enough to seek justice. It's because Bernie himself gave up. Mm. Neoliberal tears, I see you uh, popped in. Did you want to go ahead and respond? Uh, sure. I mean, that's a, that's a pretty good case, Peter. Can't really go up against that. Um, and, uh, yeah, no, thank, thank you, everyone. I was just going to share actually some news I found about Assange. Um, and there's a weird Kennedy connection. So I was, uh, just gonna sh just gonna say um for anyone who's interested um i posted the article in the chat uh, i'll post it again um so the ambassador the u.s ambassador to australia happens to be caroline kennedy she's uh the daughter of robert kennedy uh or sorry may, might, might be jfk um i'm not sure she's a kennedy anyway but uh, uh that's irrelevant what's important is that um she actually met officially with a, a bipartisan delegation of lawmakers from Australia who asked to meet uh, and discuss officially freeing Assange. Um, so Biden has a visit scheduled in Australia. Um, it, it said next month. So I don't know the U.S. ambassador getting involved. Like maybe that's a hopeful sign. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I, I covered that tonight. Um because I, I heard about it last week and then I wanted to wait a day or two to see if just to make sure that that was valid. And I didn't want to, I didn't want to get people's hopes up and it wasn't completely confirmed, but, um, but yeah, like that, that is a good sign. I mean, that's, that's good news. And um, I know there's already activist groups in Australia that plan to protest uh, when Joe Biden visits, if he still does, because it depends on whether or not there's a solution passed in Congress in reference to the debt ceiling if there isn't then he will not be able to to go to australia and it's probably kamala harris that will go in his place but either way uh i think the protests still need to happen but the fact that it is caroline kennedy and she is a u.s ambassador i think you know having her on board with this and also some of the prime ministers that she met with um I think this speaks, or not prime minister, excuse me, MPs that she met with, I think this is good news. Uh, they, The one thing they all agreed with is that this has gone on for too long, that Julian Assange needs to be freed. Yeah, I, amen. Oh my God. I mean, I'm just so worried now. We can't let Kamala like touch this. We can't send Kamala to Australia. No, she would ruin it. <laughs> I mean, not that Biden wouldn't, but like, can you imagine Kamala trying to fix it, like fix the Assange situation? We can't, we can't let, I mean, that's, oh no. God help us. She won't be, she probably won't say anything because um, I don't think she knows too much about, she really understands the issue that well. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Or if she does, it's like the wrong side of it, you know? She's like, no, keep him locked up. Oh my God. All right, Roger. And then I got to wrap up. Okay, um, Eric, I, what what was it that you said about um, American Freedman? His name is Peter. Oh shoot, <laughs> My, Peter. Hey, at least you are driving safely, Roger. Yes, it's called the Freedman. F R E E D. Right. It's called the what, what were you saying about it? Uh, it the um, Emancipation Statue is also called the Freedman Memorial. F R E E D. M A N memorial. So my Bible, uh, in my last Sunday's episode, I said 
uh, I thought that was going down two years ago. They reintroduced it. I was like, how hard it is to think that if you believe each one of us is born free. Oh, by the way, uh, in my episode, I said Lincoln had Lincoln lived. He probably is for segregation too, because uh, back then, that this is what I learned from the Rosa Parks Museum in person, in that in their presentation. Racial segregation is the practice both in the north and in the south. Okay, and, and uh, so free the man basically means that you guys are freed by the whites. Just think of that. Okay, so let me, let me just fill in some blanks. Also, that word was um, written into the congressional record after um, about after the Civil War. Um, so that's our actual thing that we adopted as our uh, as an ethnicity as of recently we never used it before because we were the only black people in the country but after 1965 nat immigration and naturalization act um and you started having people with that lifted the ban on the 1920s immigration act that barred people from non-white countries from coming here um what's happening is with reparations is concerned we're trying to make, I mean, I'm not the one doing the work on this, but we're trying to make a case that no, reparations is not based on race because that would get shot down by the 14th Amendment. It's based because, you know, you can't say that, hey, I get reparations too. I came from the Caribbean. Or I came from Africa. Like, no, your, your ancestry does not go back to slavery. So since uh, the words American freedmen was what was written into the congressional language where you even heard Kataji Brown Jackson use it on some court case just recently or whatever the case is. That's the word that we're going with to delineate, to get on the next census where it's just not black or African-American, but to delineate. So this way we know who is um, eligible for reparations so where, where you just don't have black or African-American. Now, also dealing with the with the Lincoln was probably um, one in segregation or whatever. Do you know who convinced him of that? Oh, hello. Did I, I think he you? dropped off. Ah, shoot. Oh, wait a minute. Okay. But anyway, uh, Freedmen wanted that because they did not want to live around whites. They knew that we knew our ancestors knew that there was no way in the world we were going to be able to get a fair share. So believe it or not, originally freedmen was the ones that were okay with separate but equal. Okay. Um, the problem was there was no equal. <laughs> so later on, a hundred years later, or you know, maybe not a hundred years, a little, eh, almost a hundred years or whatever the case is, um, what they were originally fighting for was not integration and to lift separate but equal. They just, it's just that the equal wasn't being fulfilled. And somehow movement got co-opted by, I don't know who, whatever the case is, to be like, no, we got to go with integration. And then that's when the value of our economy started going down. Um, I remember, um, I don't know if it, I know Sammy Davis Jr. said that he used to see people all the time before um, thing, before, uh, before Brown versus Board. But once Brown versus Board was lifted, he hardly seen any of his uh, black brethren anymore. Okay, if you take a look at, go back to that. I'm go, I'm gonna watch that Nick and Nico interview again. Okay, I, at least the last half an hour. That's when it really got interesting. 
because he was saying like Nico was saying, hey, look, my grandparents and, and their generation, they had businesses, they had an economy, it was thriving, so on and so forth. And when white people were like, oh, wait a minute, you don't need us? No, no, we good. You want to keep segregation? No problem. Keep it going. But wait a minute. You mean your dollars flip, flip, flip and just stay in your community and hardly leave? Yeah, we good. Oh, but you're thriving without us? Like, you know, yeah, we good. Okay, burn the whole shit down then. <laughs> yeah, it was reconstruction. It yep. was that, that was the yes. best time, actually. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, that's right. why Malcolm but even, That was even after, but hold up. That was even, that was happening even after reconstruction. You see yeah. what I'm saying? Because reconstruction was up until 1877, and Nico was talking about his grandparents. That that was his grandparents were probably were definitely in the 20th century. So we were still having thriving communities, not just Tulsa, okay? But we were still having thriving communities that got burnt down to the ground. You know, not just the one in North Carolina, which was Wilmington and Rosewood, but there were all these other uh, uh, things or whatever. So. It wasn't like, oh, my God, Lincoln wanted segregation. No, the freedmen convinced them of that. Like, yeah, we don't we're not going to get a fair shake with those guys. We just want to have our own thing. Yep. Nation of Islam. Also, they have their own educational system for their kids. Right. They they want sovereignty. You right? like Malcolm X demanded, uh, you know, uh, uh, land for blacks, uh, you know, just basically sovereignty. Uh, so the blacks can manage their own uh, livelihood, and they have the, all the confidence. The African Americans can manage to develop their own, you know, economy, community, schools, everything. And uh, you know, and, and Malcolm X keep asking why every time racial integration is always for black people, not for any other racial minority groups. Mm -hmm. So you know, this is why I want to go back is that that's the mentality that are established. Uh, 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 by, by the, by the white liberal, uh, and, and, uh, in this white majoritarian democracy that, uh, the rest, whites are born free, has unalienable rights. The rest of you, you have to fight for it. Yeah. That's a good point. That is a really good point, Peter. All right. I do have to head out. It is nine o'clock, but I hope everyone's had a great Mother's Day so far and, yeah, looks like the Celtics won, so I'm like dancing around. <laughs> We're moving on. Happy Mother's Day. Have a good one. This time you have to say good night now. It's or good evening. It's no longer good night. Sleep tight. Da da right. da 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 da. I think I don't know who that was from Lawrence Welk. <laughs> <laughs> all right guys bye okay good night bye. everybody